Welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. Today we have an incredible group of super social innovators that have been recognized by Classy.org, and we are just thrilled to have an impressive group of people who are absolutely changing the world and saving lives. You won't want to miss this discussion. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another change maker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Well, hello, everyone. We're excited to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. Let me just give a quick uh, roll call introduction of all the people who are here. Wave, as I call your name, but we have from uh, Humanitarian Open Street Team, Rebecca Firth. From Mission Asset Fund, Jose Quinones. From Days for Girls, Celeste Mergens. From Sustainable Health Enterprises, she. We have Elizabeth Sharp. From Because International, we have Kenton Lee. From Habitat for Humanity, we have Jody Patel. And from International Justice Mission, Blair Burns. From Grassroots Soccer, we have Molly McHugh. And from uh, Samasource, we have Wendy Gonzalez from Open Biome. We have James Burgess. And from Classy, uh, we have Pat Walsh. Welcome, all of you, to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Now, uh, I'm excited for this discussion. I want to start off uh, by setting uh, some groundwork. Uh, I want people to understand the importance of what you're doing. And so I'm going to ask you all to explain what it is that would happen if you weren't doing what you're doing uh, to solve a problem. So uh, let's start with uh, Rebecca. Rebecca at uh, Humanitarian Open Street Team, what would happen in the world if you weren't doing what you're doing? Perfect. Thanks very much, Devin, and thank you for hosting us today. Um, so at Humanitarian Open Street Map, we create maps of places in the world that are vulnerable. Um, vulnerable to disasters, disease outbreaks, um, things like that. So if we weren't creating these maps, then um, governments, humanitarian actors who are working in this place, these places to address these problems wouldn't have the data that they need to do that. Um, that data could be um, understanding logistics, understanding the population of an area, for example. Um, so Essentially, without the work that we do, these organizations just don't have what they need to be able to address the needs of a population, um, particularly, for example, infectious diseases are something we work a lot with, um, mapping to find the sources of cholera outbreaks, Ebola outbreaks, um, and other infectious diseases. Fantastic. Have you ever done any work with <laughs> polio folks? Um, yeah, there's several mapping, mapping projects uh, which relate to polio. Um, Infectious diseases are really a, a huge amount of the work that we do because obviously normally when someone comes in, for example, to a health center with an infectious disease, if you can't find where they live and you can't test their family, their neighbors, um, increase your programs in that area, whether that be um, distributing drugs all the way through to education programs to use malaria bed nets, then it's incredibly difficult to stop that disease yeah. from spreading. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Jose, uh, what would happen if you weren't doing what you're doing? Well, thank you again for uh, hosting us and, uh, and having this discussion. You know, um, we work with low-income immigrant families uh, to try to develop their financial security 
And uh, our signature program is called Lending Circles. It's a very, uh, it's based on a very traditional age-old practice of people coming together and lending and saving money with one another. What we have done is basically found a way to formalize this activity that's already happening, you know, in, in our communities, but formalize it in such a way that the credit bureaus and the you know, formal financial systems can actually recognize it. So through this activity, we're helping people build and improve their credit scores and thereby their financial security overall. I mean, if we, if we weren't doing this work, uh, and I think if more people would be uh, left in the shadows of our economy, more people would not see their full economic potential realized, and more people would not be able to you know, access the, the most basic financial products out there. And, and, and we would all be diminished because of that, you know, because people would just not be able to, again, you know, buy that house or start the business or invest you know, in themselves in education. And I think as a society overall, you know, we would be worse off by, by allowing more and more people to like not come to full, full flourishion of their economic potential. So I think that, that is exactly what we're trying to avoid. Great, great. Appreciate that. Now, Celeste, what is the problem? What, 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 would, what would happen if you weren't doing what you're doing? So Days for Girls helps women and girls all over the world go to school and go to work. By having access to feminine hygiene, they can count on month after month. We're unique and that we do that in answer to whatever the solution is that works for them. And part of what we do is washable or cups or whatever works for them, and importantly, to couple that with edu- education for women's health. Right, but what, now, but Celeste, what would you, what happened? <laughs> the question yeah. is, what do you do? Uh, yeah, I got the problem. So, so the difference for us is that we knew we had to make that a sustainable thing. So Days for Girls has done that in ways that are reaching far corners of the earth. We've reached 101 nations on six continents. And so we feel what would have happened is we wouldn't have as big of a global dialogue. Um, Menstrual hygiene wouldn't have as much awareness. And importantly, that health education wouldn't necessarily be reaching the very last mile by virtue of this social venture. Yeah. Okay. Elizabeth, you're kind of playing in the same field. Tell us about the problem. What would happen if you and Celeste and people like you weren't doing what you're doing? Well, to um, piggyback on on what Celeste was talking about, um, we also, in our signature program, address, it's called She28, and we address menstrual hygiene. Um, we were not, uh, we were not involved um, frankly, girls and women would be using alternative things um, that are not necessarily the most healthy things like um, rags and um, in extreme circumstances, leaves, dried leaves. And this would cause health problems down the line for girls and women. Uh, it also, it, it's not reliable, and so they would miss school. And I think most importantly, um, there's a loss of dignity there. Well, as I've researched this topic and in talking to Celeste in the past, I've, it's easy to find women who are being sexually exploited as well. Uh, people who either feel forced or are uh, um, uh, either being essentially raped or, or forced into prostitution uh, over this issue. Are you seeing that as well, Elizabeth? Well, I think when you don't have, um, when you don't have your own agency, and agency can be um, money, um, it can be uh, social capital in your community, then, then you are unfortunately um, 
end up being a victim of a lot of terrible things like the examples that you just gave. So we have seen that. It's, it's tragic. And so uh, it, it really is a huge problem. Now, Kenton, uh, what's going on out there? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Don't, I'm going to caution you. Don't tell us what you're doing. Say that. <laughs> That's the punchline, right? Yeah. Tell us the problem. What, what's the problem out there that you see? So the problem that I, I personally saw when I lived in Kenya and now it's the work that I do every day, uh, was for kids who don't have shoes, or they have shoes, but, you know, they're kids, right? They outgrow them. Uh, so for kids who don't have a, uh, the ability to have shoes all the time, uh, shoes are a big deal. I didn't know that uh, about 10 years ago when I had my first international trip. I didn't know that, and I began to see firsthand and then learn a lot more about what happens when kids don't have shoes. And there's three big things. It's a lot of health issues, especially if they live in areas where there's a lack of adequate sanitation. Um, so it's a lot of health issues. Education, often shoes are a mandatory part of a required school uniform. And without shoes, kids can't go to school. And then it's just the, the dignity and self-confidence that comes by having a pair of shoes. And, and a pair of shoes is fit. That's uh, a, a, a huge problem, and I'm, uh, it, it'll be interesting to learn what you're doing to address that. Um, now, uh, Jody, what is the problem that you see? Again, so, um, I want to not focus on what you're doing yet. We're going to come to that, but tell us about the problem you see. Yes, about uh, one in five people or one uh, 1.6 billion people across the globe uh, lack adequate housing, and um, affordable mortgage is ex um, most of the low-income families are excluded from the formal mortgage markets uh, and many institutions simply do not serve these low-income families that need support towards housing and affordable housing at that and this is where Habitat for Humanity has tried and worked and tried to fill the gap um, I won't talk about the fund. Yeah. So is there a is there a financing problem as well? Is that part of the mix for reasons that people don't have housing? Indeed, uh, because um, when you when you look at people across the globe, they live in makeshift shelters, and uh, although they have very informal source of income and are able to 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 have adequate shelter, they simply just don't have the kind of uh, credit one sees in the formal markets to, to be able to go to a financial institution and ask for um, uh, support in terms of finance. And most people also build incrementally. They build as, as and when their cash flows allow them. So uh, that makes it very critical for um, organizations like Habitat for Humanity to step in and, and fill that. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Jody. Uh, Blair, uh, what is the problem you see at uh, International Justice Mission? So at IJM, we won uh, the Classy Award for our work to fight cybersex trafficking in, of children in the Philippines, which we do in partnership with the government of the Philippines, Western law enforcement governments, um, and uh, NGOs. And what that is is a new and growing form of slavery um, that involves a, a person, usually in the West, logging in onto a computer and then live directing the abuse of a child uh, in the Philippines, a poor child who's taken off the street um, and abused for a small amount of money. 
Yeah, just just tragic. It's beyond beyond heinous uh, to to imagine the the depravity of people who are involved in either end of that uh, tragic situation. I I'm glad you're there to address it, and we're look forward to learning more about what you're doing. Molly, tell us about the problem that you see from grassroots soccer. Again, let's focus on the problem that you see. Sure. Thank you, Devin, for this opportunity. Um, so currently, we have the largest generation of adolescents and young people in human history, 1.8 billion pe young people on the planet. Yet these people, these adolescents are being left behind when it comes to health, especially in developing countries. For example, in the last decade, HIV-related deaths have decreased for every age group except adolescents. So the problem that we see is a gap between what adolescents need to take control of their health and access health services and stay on health services and them getting it and, and having a safe space to, to do all of those things. So at Grassroots Soccer, we are trying to close the adolescent health gap in developing countries. Why does the gap exist? Is it because the health services aren't available for them or they're not taking advantage of it? It's, it's a great question. It's actually a combination of both. Um, many, you know, there's been a lot of global emphasis on child mortality, which has been a huge win for global health. I mean, it's a great success story. Still a lot of work to go. But adolescents are a group where services aren't necessarily tailored to their needs. It's such a tricky time in their development. And there are a lot of tricky issues, especially around sexual and reproductive health that they may not feel comfortable going to a traditional health system. So we're trying to bridge that gap. I can't imagine why a teenager wouldn't want to talk to his parents about uh, sex. Oh, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it turns out I wasn't the only one. Um, so, uh, Wendy, uh, what is the problem you see from the vantage point of Samosource? Uh, the problem that we see from the vantage point of Samosource is really poverty. Um, we believe that poverty is ultimately at the root of all uh, social ills, whether it be, uh, you know, medicine, uh, trafficking, um, you know, education, uh, and the ability to, um, you know, ultimately further to contribute into society. So we're really trying to um, solve, uh, solve poverty. <laughs> that's what our organization's about. Oh, that's fantastic, Wendy. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you're there. And global poverty is... Uh, in so many measurable ways declining, but uh, there are still, what, 700 billion or 700 million people living in uh, extreme poverty and billions more living uh, in uh, less extreme forms of poverty, right? Uh, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And we are really trying to target those 700 million, really those that are, are truly sort of at the bottom of the economic pyramid who have the biggest barrier towards getting employment. Now, it, there's been a, an ongoing debate for years uh, about whether uh, the people in that group uh, need, you know, what they need to, to, uh, uh, to, to get out of poverty, but some have argued that it's really pretty simple, that they need a, a J-O-B. Uh, uh, so I uh, look forward to learning more about what you're doing. Uh, James, uh, there is no doubt uh, in my mind, that uh, what you're doing is the most shocking thing of what people are doing. But 
Tell us a little bit about the problem that you address, because I'm sure most people in this in the audience do not know this is a big problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so open biome is, is really focused on two problems. Um, the, the sort of most immediate and, and direct problem that we're focused on is um, a, a bacterial infection called Clostridium difficile or C. diff. Uh, not everyone's heard of C. diff, but it's actually the most common hospital-acquired infection in the U.S. and is considered uh, one of the CDC's three most urgent health threat priorities in, in the country. So it's actually a really significant problem that affects about a half million patients every year in this country um, and, and also has pretty significant effects uh, overseas as well. Um, C. diff is a, is a tricky uh, infection. It, it causes really severe diarrhea and can lead to complications that can require surgery or can even cause death. Um, and in many cases, it, it doesn't respond to our, our standard of care antibiotic treatment. Um, now, what's really, really fortunate and exciting is actually there's another type of therapy that does treat C. diff really effectively. It's called a fecal transplant. Um, well, which, wait, hold that thought. We'll yeah. come back to what you're doing. Let's yep. focus on the problem for a minute. You know, my father nearly died from a C. diff infection last year on the 4th of July. This yeah. is a problem. Thousands of people die. How many people die every year from this, do you think? Uh, in the U.S., it's about 30,000 people die every year. Um, and, and so, you know, we can expect at least double that, uh, you know, worldwide. So a lot of people die, um, but, you know, a much, even much larger uh, patient population is severely suffering. We actually launched the organization because a close friend of ours had C. diff and uh, was, you know, was unable to go on the subway because he wasn't sure if he'd be able to make it to a bathroom in time. These patients usually have to go to the bathroom 30 or 40 times a day. So it's, it's a really debilitating, uh, frankly, embarrassing and, and, and terrible disease for people to have. Um, what's exciting is this, this treatment called a, a fecal transplant works really well, but it's, it's very hard to get. It's still the problem. I'm still in the problem here. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it, you know, until we launched, uh, or well, in, in the old days at least, uh, it was very hard to have a fecal transplant done. There's a lot of uh, administrative and legal risk associated with it. Hospitals were, were not very excited about bringing this procedure in because of obviously all the uh, sort of taboo and, and concern about bringing stool in, into a healthcare environment. And so uh, that's, that's sort of the, the really immediate problem that we're focused on is, is bridging that gap. Um, the, the broader problem, though, and, and, and or really opportunity is um, is, is uh, this really exciting new field of medicine that, that we're just uh, starting to tiptoe into called the microbiome, which is the collection of bacteria that live in your body and on your body, you know, almost a trillion bac bacteria that live in your body. Um, and we're, we're just starting to learn about how important uh, the, the microbiome is for human health across a huge range of, of health conditions, including autoimmune disorders and metabolic disease and infectious disease. Um, and, and the opportunity is, you know, can we make this, this science move faster and help, help the scientific community really understand the importance of this, uh, this, this brand new uh, sort of uh, almost organ system uh, it's been defined as uh, in, in healthcare. And so that's another kind of problem in and of itself is how do we make this science evolve faster given all the exciting promise and potential of the microbiome? And we'll get yeah. to that too. Fantastic. Now, uh, Pat, uh, you've assembled this incredible group of people who, uh, and organizations who are doing, who, who have identified these huge problems. How did you uh, pick winners? What does the award recognize? Let's, let's focus on what is the award that uh, they've all won recognize? Sure. The Classy Awards recognize some of the most innovative nonprofits and social enterprises from around the world. Our mission at Classy has always been to mobilize and empower the world for good. 
And we've been fortunate over the past few years to work with thousands of organizations. Um, and one of, the, one of the realizations that we had is that there's a lot of innovative thinking and a lot of innovative and creative models that are out there addressing social issues like the ones you just heard. Um, but oftentimes those nonprofits, those social enterprises weren't receiving the recognition for their, their programs that they deserve. And so we created the Class Awards to shine a spotlight on those programs. And our purpose through the Class Awards is to recognize amazing organizations like these. Well, uh, fantastic. We're, we're thrilled to have you all here and, uh, again, congratulate you on receiving your awards. I want to go through the, the group again, and in order to, I think, uh, help the audience maintain some continuity, I'll go through in the same order and ask you all to tell us what you're doing to address the problem that we discussed in the, in the first question. So, uh, Rebecca, tell us about what uh, humanitarian open street team is doing uh, to to solve the problem of the lack of maps uh, in, in the world. Great. Okay. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned first time, maps and geodata are a huge barrier to running development projects or disaster responses. Um, and what we do is we help anyone anywhere um, in the world create those maps. So we've made a really simple, easy um, online tool, which you can pick up in you know, up to five minutes, um, and you can directly contribute to creating those maps. Um, so it's, it's a really incredible project because we sort of harness the crowd to support genuine field work. Um, so this week we passed 30,000 volunteers um, who've mapped the homes of over 45 million people who haven't been on the map before. And all those people can now receive, um, be the beneficiaries of development projects in a way that they just couldn't before. Um, so one example of this is last year when there was a yellow fever outbreak in Kinshasa. Um, the Missing Maps community, so our community of mappers um, who are using the OpenStreetMap uh, tools, activated to map the area. Um, and then what followed was the largest and fastest vaccination campaign ever um, by Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, um, who used the map to vaccinate 720,000 people in 10 days. Wow. So without that map, that project, it's not just that the project can happen, but it will happen slowly. It's that the project can't happen at all. So what we do is we just help anyone in the world contribute to, to humanitarian field work. That's incredible work. Thank you for doing it. Now, Jose, tell us what you're doing at the Mission Asset Fund. Yes, uh, thank you for that. Uh, you know, what, what we're doing is basically addressing the question of uh, people that are, are financially excluded. Uh, you know, we, uh, we've learned that in the United States alone, there's about 45 million you know, adults that are what are called credit invisible, that have no credit score or no credit report. You know, and that might seem like, oh, well, so what if they don't have a credit score, right? But the fact is, in this, you know, in this country, in this economy, without having a credit report or credit score, it basically means that you're just invisible to the economic system overall. And it's, it's sort of like very debilitating. I mean, you know, because you, without that credit score, you can't get a loan to buy a car, to buy a house, to invest in your, in your business. So without even a credit report, it's very difficult for people to actually even get, uh, you know, life insurance 
or insurance of any type because everything kind of goes back to the credit report. It's sort of like the, the passport that we all use. And without the passport, you can't really, you know, do anything. You can't travel abroad. You can't, you can't really navigate yourself, you know, around, around the world. So, so, so we're trying to sort of address that. And now, that's not a problem of just the United States. I mean, you know, there's over 2 billion people are, you know, around the world that are considered, you know, financially excluded. People that don't have checking accounts, savings accounts, people that are just really outside of the financial mainstream on, on the world, worldwide level. Uh, you know, what we're trying to do is to say, well, yes, we want to bring them in, right, because that's going to not only strengthen them as individuals, as a family, as a community to sort of develop their financial wherewithal, but it also will improve the economic systems of overall. But it's not just about like, oh, here's a checking account, here's a saving account, and then that's that, right, or here's a, a mobile phone and we're done with that. No, I mean, the fact is that there's a lot of great things that people are doing outside of the system. And so we're trying to recognize that as well, to say that they're not just, you know, helpless individuals, you know, out there in the hinterlands, you know, doing nothing. They actually are doing something. And so, so we're trying to recognize the good things that are happening in the community and, and then using that as a starting point to get, get them into the system. And so when we develop Lending Circles, we sort of recognize this age-old practice of people coming together to lend and borrow money with each other. In Mexico, the Portandas, Colinas, all throughout the Caribbean, the Colsusus. I mean, this is a, you know, it's a common practice all over the world, you know, but it's, in, it's invisible, it's informal, nobody recognizes it. And so, so by formalizing it, you're able to give people a credit score and, and give them a, a leg up onto the sort of the, the formal uh, economic system, right? Exactly. I mean, we're, we're basically, uh, you know, it's, it's about formalizing informality. That is essentially our strategy, about formalizing what's already happening, you know, in, in people's lives. And then, and then that's a starting point to kind of get them more and more integrated into our, our overall economic systems. Great. Now, Celeste, at Days for Girls, you started a little bit telling us already what you're doing. Tell us more about what you're doing to provide uh, young women and women around the world with uh, PATS. Absolutely. So the real obstacle for these women is being able to take advantage of every day of their lives and also that understanding of their health, right? We combine those things so that she helping break the stigma and the shame by empowering local ambassadors of women's health and ambassadors all over the world, more than 60,000 of them, to teach the people in their community that there is no shame. Without periods, there would be no people. That thing, real stigma and real shame that women are facing that limit their opportunities um, can be overcome by a community dialogue. So we're giving her or him that power while enabling them to follow this passion by having income from doing direct sales of a product that is small enough to fit in your hand and last two to three years. And the, engaging these two things together is a powerful means of shifting the stigma that's out there while giving them back days of dignity. Now, Elizabeth, you're doing some of the same work. And, and Celeste actually introduced me to this problem last year, and I've been really focused on it. I, I visited Rwanda and Uganda earlier this year. I visited Banapads there in Uganda doing similar work. Can you tell us about your approach and how that differs from Celeste's and, and how it's working? Sure. So we help women jumpstart businesses to manufacture and distribute affordable maxi pads. And, and the reason we do this is we 
you know, many years ago, um, when I was researching the problem, I found out that people were donating pads and that didn't offer necessarily a long lasting solution in a lot of communities. So I used my business, put my business skills to the test and figured out how to use local material. Like I have some hair, some banana fiber um, from the trunk of the tree and a simple manufacturing process using very little electricity and water uh, so that women can make their own pads and then eventually sell it um, on the market to schools and other places where women and girls gather. And we couple those, um, that manufacturing and distribution business with health education uh, so that women and girls can go to school, work, be confident in work, and uh, have the dignity that they need every day. Yeah, it's uh, Im impressive work that you're doing and uh, really uh, a global problem that uh, I don't know when people really started talking about it, but it's, it's a relatively recent discovery, right? Most people didn't recognize, even in the development community, that this was the problem that it is. And I'm so glad you and Celeste and others are jumping in to address it. Well, that's actually a, 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 a great point. The reason why I jumped into this in the first place is because it fell through the cracks of traditional development. It didn't, wasn't at the top of the list for health. The health people at big foundations wasn't at the top of the list for education folks. And I'm, I'm curious um, with my colleagues on the call as well, if, if that's part of the reason why they are doing what they're doing. Was this overlooked um, by a lot of different big actors? And is that why you jumped in? and decided yeah. to do something about it. Sure seems to be the case with James at Open Biome. Uh, I suspect it probably is true to a greater or lesser extent with everybody. Now, uh, Kenton, uh, tell us about your shoes. Now, there's, there's a viral video out there that I keep seeing uh, because I love this space, and I keep seeing your famous shoes out there. You, you're you're going to have to have an entourage soon if, the, if this video gets any more popular. But tell us what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, this came from an idea I had when I lived at an orphanage about 10 years ago. Uh, there were a lot of kids who had donated shoes, which are great. Um, a lot of groups work to help kids get shoes, um, but they'd outgrown them, and they didn't have any other options. There were no more donations, and you know the orphanage was, was very poor and couldn't afford new shoes every time the kids' feet grow, uh, which kids' feet are growing a lot. Uh, and so I just had an idea. What if there was a shoe that could grow? And uh, so we created uh, a very simple name, uh, The Shoe That Grows. Um, it's a shoe that grows five sizes, uh, can last up to five years, and um, really just saw it as, uh, as an in innovation, like just a little, a little better way to do it. Um, it doesn't solve every problem for the kids. Um, you know, the reason they can't have shoes in the first place is because of the challenges of extreme poverty, but... Um, for that specific problem, for kids without shoes, uh, this has been an incredible shoe that, as their feet grow, it grows right along with their feet. So, uh, and for us, like, legitimately, I did not expect to ever uh, win a classy award or even be in this space. I just had the idea. Uh, I live in Idaho. I'm really just a simple guy. It took me six years to kind of work on it. And then, like you said, uh, two years ago, we went accidentally, uh, went viral. And so we're really proud. In the last two years, we've gotten over 100,000 pairs uh, of shoes to kids in 89 countries. And now we're starting to manufacture them in uh, some of the places where they're being used the most. So our hope is to not only get these great shoes to kids uh, who need them, but also to bring jobs 
through the uh, manufacturing, warehousing, and distribution of the shoes as well. So your model generally is to distribute the, is to have organizations buy the shoes and distribute them so the children generally are getting the shoes for free. Is that right? Right now we, we are in kind of a donation uh, model. So we, we have worked with over a thousand different uh, churches, organizations, rotary clubs, schools, people who travel and work with kids are, are taking the shoes with them for the most part and hand delivering those to the kids they work with. Um, but as we continue to grow, our team is really only just a couple years old. As we continue to grow, uh, as we continue to produce the shoes locally, um, we're excited to look into retail uh, opportunities for the shoes, um, more kind of localized, regionalized distribution. We just really feel strongly about getting a pair of shoes to every kid who needs it. And in many cases, families can take care of their own kids and get them shoes. But for those kids who truly cannot afford shoes, especially as their feet grow, um, we, we just don't want to accept that as reality. We want to get a pair of shoes to every kid, every kid who needs it. That's great. Now, Jody, let, let's talk a little bit about what's going on at Habitat. Uh, what are you doing to address these problems, especially the, the, the financing problem uh, for people in, in getting into, you know, legitimate housing? Yes, thanks, um, Devin. So when, when you look at... Uh, the, the movement of microfinance that allowed people to borrow uh, small loans because they did not have access to formal banking system. People took loans and they used it towards working capital uh, to, to create products and services and goods working out of their homes. Um, what has happened is that when people have a leaking roof or a need to install a water tank in their, in their homes, uh, they often have to borrow money towards that purpose, but that's not really allowing them to use money towards productive uses. It's creating an asset within your home. Uh, what the studies had found is that they, people often used these short-term borrowing and used it towards long-term purposes, creating a, a severe cash flow mismatch at uh, household levels. So in order to demonstrate the, the scale opportunity and um, the financial viability of housing microfinance as a product, what Habitat for Humanity, Unit, Habitat for Humanity did was to launch the MicroBuild Fund. It is a $100 million fund, uh, a closed-end fund for 10-year period that has uh, an evidence of strong support and partnership from uh, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is the U.S. Um, agency, uh, uh, and it, it is a part of the U.S. government um, and uh, other actors such as MetLife Foundation and Omidyar Network, those foundations have vested interest in making sure that people have access towards property rights and proper titles. So what MicroBuild Fund does is provide longer term, larger size <laughs> capital to institutions, which in turn on lends to borrowing clients. We, what also Habitat does is provide almost $10 million of technical assistance support, which means building the capacity of institutions so that they can create these kind of housing microfinance products. Uh, uh, we also train the, the banking institutions, loan officers and, and managers. And on the borrowing side, what we do is provide technical assistance to the clients that take these loans so that we ensure that they are able to build uh, sustainably, strongly and uh, create durable homes. Um, and also provide them with financial education. So 
when you look at the demonstration effect of uh, a fund like Microbill, which has created this platform of public-private partnership, what you see is that as of today, which is half, we are halfway into the fund's life. Um, at five-year mark, we the fund has almost disbursed three-fourths of its 100 million, totaling about 75 million across um, 43 microfinance institutions in 26 countries. And what we have seen is that when you have a proper properly developed product, a finance product, then people will have an incentive to, to repay those loans back. And we see that evidence in, in the, the, the fund, fund itself as, as of this point. Yeah. Remarkable work. Remarkable work. Now, Blair, at International Justice Mission, we, we talked about one of the most offensive problems that exists in the world. What are you doing to address that? Yeah, we have a, at IJM, we have a pretty fundamental belief that if a justice system is functioning, um, at least at least on some some basic level, then violence against the poor will, will dramatically go down. And, the, and we believe the flip side of that as well, that if, that if a justice system is not functioning, any, any intervention that you do to stop violence is not going to get, it's not going to get very far. So why is that? Because, you know, if you think, about human rights violations, just about every single one of them is illegal in just about every single country in the world. Um, but but the, the protection of the law requires a, a, a delivery system. And the delivery system for that protection is the justice system. That's the, the police, it's the prosecutors, it's the courts, and it's the social services. And so what we're trying to do is to go to places where the justice system is not functioning particularly well and figure out how to, to make it function. So we do that by by conducting casework, meaning that we work with justice system partners, other NGOs, um, and in the case of cybersex trafficking, international law enforcement, to bring individual cases of, of violence, uh, rescue the victim of that violence, uh, and initiate prosecution, hopefully achieve a conviction against the, the perpetrators. And we do that in case after case for a long period of time. And what that allows us to do is to see what are the infirmities in the system, where can we target reforms within the system to make it work better. Um, and then we believe that, what, that those reforms, once they take off and start to work short better, then, then the system is functional and there'll be a dramatic impact on the crime. Um, in the Philippines, prior to our cyber sex trafficking work, we, we were doing regular sex trafficking and we saw over the course of about 10 years, uh, between a 75% and an 86% reduction in the crime over time. Uh, and we believe that, that is a result <clears throat> solely of the justice system starting to work. On cyber sex trafficking, we're just getting started. And so we're seeing a massive number of cases emanating from our Western law enforcement partners. Um, we're all struggling to get, our, get a handle on cyber, cyber sex trafficking, but we believe the same, the same prescription will work, that uh, we will figure out where we can target reforms, um, and then eventually the justice system will provide a credible deterrent and people will stop committing this crime. And you, know, you don't have to prevent every single case or capture every single bad guy. All you have to do no. is raise the cost of doing business and the crooks will go do something else, right? Exactly. Now, well, Blair, we commend you for the great work you're doing. Molly, uh, Let's talk about teenage sex a little bit. Um, they make movies about this stuff. What are you doing to help address this really serious uh, health crisis that really is rather unaddressed around the world? So 
At Grassroots Soccer, we believe young people can be the greatest agents of change in this issue. And so what we do is we harness the global power of soccer, the beautiful game, to connect young people with the mentors, information, and health services they need to thrive, empower, be empowered to make educated choices around these health challenges, such as HIV, AIDS, sexual health, gender-based violence, and malaria. So what we do, our model is built on what we call the three C's, amplifying the three A's. The three C's are our formula for reaching young people. And the three C's are coaches, curriculum, and culture. Our coaches, um, to use soccer language, which we do throughout our programming, football and many of the local places where we work, our coaches are young individuals from the communities where we work. We train them in health education skills and um, on mentorship skills. They become supportive mentors to our participants. Our curricula are evidence-based, engaging, and culturally sensitive. Um, so we have curricula that address various issues um, that might be relevant to that cultural context, whether it be gender-based violence, um, malaria in certain regions, HIV, AIDS, etc. Um, and all of our curricula use soccer-based activities as the, as the heart of what they do. So the learning is all engaging and interactive. And that leads into our culture, which is about being fun, engaging, and interactive in a way that young people can connect with, um, and also about creating safe and supportive spaces. Those three C's, the goal is to imp amplify impact in three A the three A's, which are assets, access, and adherence. So access, I'm sorry, assets, um, to, to jump on a point that was made earlier about young people having agency, having the skills to negotiate relationships, having the knowledge to base decisions and make good decisions about their behaviors. Um, access is what we touched on earlier about understanding where they can go for health services and helping to, to get them there and bridge that gap. And adherence is about setting them up for a lifetime of accessing those health services and also supporting them when things get scary. For example, one of our most successful programs in Zambia right now is a program specifically for HIV positive youth. Um, that can be extremely scary to be diagnosed HIV positive. Um, they are supported by an HIV positive coach and they are surrounded by an HIV positive youth club um, to help them through this, this scary process and to show them that there's hope ahead of them. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Molly. I appreciate it. Great work you're doing and uh, all your alphabet uh, activities. Uh, we are grateful for Listen, I, I have done... Uh, not a shocking uh, confession here, but I've done a poor job of managing time because I just love this discussion. Uh, do you all have, uh, say, five more minutes to keep going? Because we're, we're now over our committed time. So we'll keep going for, we'll try and wrap this up quickly. But uh, Wendy, tell us uh, what you're doing at Sama Source. Uh, sure. Thanks, Devin. So um, as I mentioned uh, before, we're, we're really trying to fight is extreme poverty. And we do this by connecting uh, marginalized women and youth, those that are most vulnerable and have the biggest challenges towards employment, to dignified work via the internet. Uh, and we do this through a digital skills training program where we work uh, directly in slum areas. So for example, we work in the slums of uh, Nairobi. We work in uh, extremely uh, poor rural Uganda. <clears throat> we also work in uh, India as well. And after we provide uh, these young people and women um, digital skills training, we then uh, support them in terms of direct employment opportunities. So we either um, 
place them or work with local corporations to place them into full-time work or we hire them directly. And uh, the kind of work that we, we do is trainable work. So our goal is to really be the bridge employer because we believe once somebody's able to get a job, they're able to to you know stay employed and ultimately permanently move out of the poverty cycle. So uh, it's been a really, really um, exciting model to date. We've uh, moved over 36,000 people out of poverty, uh, paid out over $10 million in wages, and we found that the folks that leave our program, uh, well over 80% of them stay employed in full-time employment or go back to higher education, which is uh, university. That's uh, really inspiring work that you do and, and uh, nothing like a job to help someone get out of poverty. Uh, James, uh, tell us what you're doing. I, I've been waiting for this great discussion about fecal matter, so give it to us, James. Sure. Always happy to talk about poop. Um, so, uh, so what Open Biome does is uh, we run a stool bank. So think of a blood bank. Uh, think of you know the Red Cross. Uh, we do that for poop, um, and so we we in particular, uh, make it easy for physicians to get access to a uh, very carefully, rigorously screened stool um, that's been processed and prepped and frozen and is ready for use uh, in fecal transplant procedures. Um, what is a fecal transplant and why on earth would anyone want one? Yeah, great question. Um, so a fecal transplant is where we're taking uh, stool and, and really what we're after actually is the bacteria that are inside of the stool from a healthy donor uh, and we actually transfuse it into the colon of a patient. So uh, it can be administered in a variety of different ways. It's most commonly done through a colonoscopy, although more recently we've been rolling out an oral capsule formulation. So it's literally a poop pill that you can take. Um, and what this is doing is delivering the, the healthy microbiome from a, from a donor into the patient. Um, and it's, it's particularly exciting for uh, C. difficile patients. Uh, it turns out about 90% of C. diff patients uh, are cured by a, a fecal transplant procedure, uh, which is a relatively low-cost, safe procedure, um, whereas many of these patients don't respond to our most powerful antibiotics. So it's a very exciting therapy for this patient population. Um, and we also use a lot in, in, in research. Uh, and so more and more Open Biome is partnering with leading academic hospitals and uh, research institutions to understand uh, how the microbiome uh, causes disease uh, sort of beyond C. difficile. So looking at uh, autoimmune disorders, diabetes, obesity, even uh, neuropsychiatric conditions have, have uh, microbiome links. And we work with scientists to do clinical trials where we're actually um, giving patients fecal transplants with these other diseases to see if we can actually, uh, you know, in, induce a clinical response and, and possibly lead to the development of, of new, new cures. So, um, Today, Biome provides uh, about 1,000 fecal transplants a month um, to, to hospitals all across the U.S. and actually in, in Western Europe, and, and uh, I think we're, we're getting ready to do our first partnership with someone in South America. So we have a pretty large footprint and, and are really focused on making this treatment as widely available as possible. That's great. Well, I can't imagine anything more uh, or less appetizing than a poop pill, but what a radical advance in, being, in terms of cost to be able to administer that by taking a pill as opposed to having a, <clears throat> a surgical procedure to, to provide that. Yep, exactly. Exciting work, exciting work. Well, Pat, let's wrap up with you. Uh, tell us how the winners were chosen quickly. Sure, sure. And uh, I'll make this quick. I know we're short on time. But uh, essentially, as many of the organizations here can attest to, we have a very comprehensive process for selecting the Class Award winners. It's a, a four-phase process with a, a very comprehensive uh, nomination form. 
And uh, it's one that we've refined and continued to improve year after year with the Class C Awards. Uh, what really makes the Class C Awards uh, prestigious, though, is, is the selection committee that actually determines who the winners are. Um, at Class C, we're fortunate to have built the, the framework by which many of these organizations can be recognized. But the, the real prestige of the award comes from the, the esteemed leaders that are, that are behind the actual selection process. We have some of the top uh, experts uh, and influencers in the, the nonprofit space, foundations, corporations, academia, international agencies, and it's their involvement um, and their, uh, their perspective that actually lends uh, to the credibility of the awards itself. Fantastic. Now, one last question for you, Pat. When will you do this again, and how do people get or organizations get nominated? Absolutely. Um, so we'll be hosting the 8th Annual Class C Awards uh, in Boston next year, June 14th, uh, 2018. We're really excited about that. Nominations will be open uh, this fall. So you can stay tuned, classy.org, uh, and you'll, you can uh, actually sign up to uh, get all the alerts when they come around. Fantastic. Well, I cannot thank you all enough for uh, taking the time to share your stories with me today. It's uh, a thrill to have all the winners on one uh, call. We appreciate you taking the time to do it, and I congratulate you one last time on your uh, really tremendous and impressive recognition. The work you're doing, uh, in, I'm sure, feels like its own reward for most of you, but it's great to see you recognized for the great work you're doing. So thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Devin. Thank you. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you. Thank you. Let's see here. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.